Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Your words are the only ones worth hearing. I ask that You would instruct my speech and touch my lips with graciousness that I would communicate Your message and Your truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. This passage is a long one. It's the entire chapter, Exodus 32. It's on pages 72 in your Bible, 72 and 73. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make for us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down. For your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly from the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of, the, of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. 
But he said it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger grew hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire. And out came this calf. And then Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did, according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin." So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, In the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague upon the people, because they had made the calf the one Aaron had made. It's a long passage. When we read the Old Testament, it's often tempting to take the perspective of the Pharisees. You look at Israel, and you wonder, what on earth prompted them to disobey like they did. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw plagues put upon Egypt. God sent them prophets. He sent them priests. He gave them a system of atonement. And the majority of the Old Testament seems to be them getting their faith drastically wrong. One second, they're praising God and then they're worshiping a cow. One second, they're singing about how wonderful God is and the next, they don't think God will save them. They can't believe He's that powerful. It's easy to think, if I was born at that time, if I was among God's people then, I wouldn't have sinned like them. I wouldn't have killed the prophets. 
I wouldn't have bitten the apple. And I wouldn't have built the golden calf. But this perspective is not only wrong, it misses the point of the text. It's not just showcasing for us sinfulness. It's doing that as well. But it's holding up a mirror. It's showing us the human condition. To be honest, Israel's behavior isn't that different from other people groups of that time. Making gods is pretty common. And we still do it to this day. The difference was Israel had a covenant relationship with God. And in this text, the people are unfaithful to it. And God is made jealous by that. God does not want to be second in his people's hearts. He doesn't tolerate us worshiping other things. He says in Isaiah, I am God. There is no other. I am God and there's none like me. But even in his jealousy, even in his anger, he cannot forsake the love he has for his people. There is mercy. There is a place for someone to stand in between God and his people. And this chapter unfolds this in three parts. Israel's sin, God's anger, and Moses' intercession. So first, Israel's sin. It would be nice to say this was a sin of ignorance. Israel had no idea what they were doing is wrong. But they do. And they've been told explicitly not to do this. If you can, turn to Exodus chapter 24 and read verses 7 and 8. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This book of the covenant includes the Ten Commandments, which says, don't make graven images. And it even includes, in the next line, I'm a jealous God. Don't do this. I will get very angry. The next few chapters, 25 to 31, Moses is called up to the mountain to get a sign from God that the stone tablets of the covenant to say, this is real between us. He goes up there, taking Joshua with him partway, and he leaves Aaron in charge. Bless you. And in those chapters, God is instructing him, this is how I will dwell with you. This is the kind of house you should build for me. This is how I want to be with my people. But Israel has other ideas. Look at verse 1 of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, 
Make for us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They don't even mention God once. They're not concerned with what they just said they would do. They're not concerned with being obedient to God. The only one they mention is Moses. And now that he's gone, they're going to shop for a new God. It's almost like Moses is a wizard that has some divine power. Now that he's gone, well, we're going to have to make do for ourselves. They don't go searching for him in case he's dead. They don't consult the book of the covenant that they just got. If they had, they may have seen the chapters that says twice, don't make metal images. But they don't. It shows that it doesn't matter how many resources you have. It doesn't matter if this is right next to you on your nightstand every time you close your eyes. This alone won't change you. The sinfulness is inside of you. We still see the same sort of sin that they had in ourselves. I have never made a golden calf when I felt God was distant. But I have gotten very moody at my wife when she asks me to take the trash out. And it's the same sin. There are different responses, but both myself and the Israelites want the world around us and even God to conform to our desires. And when we don't, when the world doesn't, we get impatient. For some undisclosed reason, though, Aaron looks at their impatience and says, okay, that's, that's fine. Give me your gold. He makes it into a calf. And the Israelites say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Israel has taken creation and formed it into a creature and are bowing down before it. The image of God is worshiping the image of a cow. It's completely backwards. And then Aaron takes it a step further. When he sees the people praising the cow and saying these things, he goes and builds an altar in front of it. And then he says, tomorrow is a feast day to Yahweh. He uses God's proper name. So Israel has broken their covenant by breaking the first three of the Ten Commandments. They have made themselves gods. They have made a graven image. And they have used the Lord's name in vain. But God wasn't unaware of their sin as he talked with Moses. This brings us to the second point, God's anger. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly from the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Moses is, go, is commanded, go back to the camp. They've screwed up already. 
And notice God didn't take any ownership. He didn't say go back to my people. He said go back to your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Their actions have cut themselves off. They're no longer attached to God. Further, God is ticked. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I make a great nation of you. There's a common notion that if God loves me, then he's just not going to care about my sin. He'll forget about it. Sweep it under the rug. It's a sin of presumption on God's forgiveness. The problem is that it's both a false picture of humanity and a false picture of God. We're not good inside. Evilness comes out of us. And God does not slack on his holiness. God is perfectly holy. I heard one preacher summarize it quite well when he said, some people think, well, God knows my heart. Why is that good news? If God knows your heart, he knows exactly why you do everything, that should be terrifying to you. If a wife walks in and sees her husband cheating on her, she has every right to be upset, and she probably should be upset. How much more with God who's already condescending to have any relation with us at all? Fortunately, God's anger comes with an exit clause. He can't forsake his people. Even in this very serious proclamation, there's mercy. Notice the logic of what he says. His anger will burn hot and he will consume the Israelites and make Moses into a great nation if Moses does not say anything to God. If Moses doesn't cry out in favor of Israel, then that's the end. But there's room for someone to stand in between God and his people, to intercede for them. And in this case, that's Moses. This leads us to the third point, Moses' intercession. He rises to this occasion. It's funny to think this is the man who, when God first called him out, said, I am just slow of speech. I can't. I can't speak to Pharaoh. And yet here he is speaking to the Almighty God and saying, wait, hold on a second. He appeals to God for Israel in three ways. He appeals to God's intentions, his reputation, and his faithfulness. First he says, why does your wrath burn hot against your people who you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Moses knows he didn't really rescue Israel. He's just the middleman. God rescued his people and said, I'm going to bring them into a land of milk and honey. Moses is saying, I don't think you mean that because you already said you were going to bring all these people. Why bring them all out to go into this land only to kill them? Then he brings up God's reputation. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them off the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. 
God destroys Israel, then the Egyptians are going to think God's evil. And finally, he appeals to God's faithfulness. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses knows that God can remember his promises. He's not trying to remind him as though he's forgetful. He's saying, I trust in what you have said. You've said this to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and I believe you're going to see that through. He's not reminding a forgetful God, but he's trusting in a faithful one. And God relents. He relents from this disaster that he has spoken of. Now, this doesn't mean God changed his mind. God is immutable. He doesn't change. He's not like a human. But it teaches us that our prayers can be effective. Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest theologians who ever lived, sums this up well when he says, we pray not that we may change the divine disposition, but that we may ask that which God has disposed to be fulfilled by our prayers. God ordains everything, including the causes. We, when we pray, are being the cause that God has ordained. And that prayer allows the effect that God has ordained to follow through. It's clear, it's not Moses changing God's mind, it's God wants Moses to do this. God wants someone interceding for his people. That's why he left the space a few verses back. That's why he said, let me alone, implying, if you talk to me, I'll listen. But Moses doesn't just represent Israel to God, he represents God to Israel. And he goes back, he goes down to his people. And he's greeted by Joshua at some point, who says, it sounds like there's war in the camp. And Moses says, it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like singing. Moses knows exactly what's going on. It's like God. He's aware of what he's getting into. Look at verses 19 and 20. And as soon as they came near the camp, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned white hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. That same phrase, white hot, is used about God's anger a few verses before. He's feeling the same indignation that God felt. He destroys this calf. And he doesn't just destroy it. He pulverizes it. This is one of the greatest smackdowns that's ever happened in the Bible. He burns this thing and then grinds it to powder and then scatters it in water and then goes a step further and says, all right, all you idolaters, come on, drink this. Drink this gold-infused water. And it's similar, very similar, to the test for adultery we find in the book of Numbers, chapter 5. 
what would happen is they would take a cup of water and put dust in it. And if a husband thought his wife had committed adultery, bring her to the temple and they would say, all right, drink this. And if it caused her pain and deformed her body, well, then she committed adultery and she would be shunned. But if she didn't, nothing would happen. It's Moses saying, what you did, the guilt will be on you. You've broken your covenant relationship with God in the same way that an adulterous spouse is breaking their covenant relationship. Now then Moses does the wise thing and confronts the leader. He goes to Aaron and says, what did this people do to you? You have brought such a great sin upon them. He's incredulous that his brother would do such a thing. Surely there's got to be something. They must have forced you to do this. There was something, someone driving you to do this, even though you didn't want to. Yet, his response leaves a lot to be desired. Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. They, so they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. To be fair, it could be that coercion was used. The word in verse 1 that is translated as gathered themselves together is used in other times in the Bible and it's when a mob gathers to get someone to do what they want. But nevertheless, Aaron's doing what Adam did in Genesis 3. It's not my fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's their fault. Israel's the evil one. I'm just here. His explanation also conveniently misses a couple things. How he used a tool to shape it into the golden calf. Instead, it just magically appears. And his building of the altar and declaring it a feast day to Yahweh. All of that is strangely absent from his explanation. Aaron's response is cowardice at best, at worst an outright lie. Moses realizes it's gone to the pits. Israel's completely loose, unrestrained. They don't even consider their covenant worthwhile anymore. They want God their way rather than serving God as he commanded. And so he says, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the Levites come to him. The text doesn't say whether they were faithful Israelites who never worshipped the calf or idolaters who repented. But in either case, they're about to prove what side they're on. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Now, notice they're ordered to go in between the gates, but never into people's houses. This isn't a massacre. 
Perhaps the people who ran into their houses ran because they were repentant. Or perhaps the idolaters were angry and trying to rally. We don't know. But the Israelites were probably pretty aware who was active in their idolatry and who was in repentance. And so they go out and they kill them. doesn't matter if they're your brother or your son. God has told you to do it and they do it. That is probably the most painful thing that someone has had to do for God. Christ aside. To have to kill someone's family. I can't imagine what that would be like. If I was there and God said, hey, kill your brother, I, I don't know what I would do. But it is the right thing to do. Sometimes we have to sacrifice even good things, even blessings that God has given us because they cause us to fall into sin. You don't always need to go to the Bible to see this played out. One of my favorite places to go when I'm in a moral crisis is Batman comics. In one that came out in 1993, Batman is introduced to a drug called Venom. It's a pill that gives the user invulnerability and super strength, which seems pretty convenient for the guy who doesn't have superpowers. But it's also highly addictive. And there comes a point where he lets the bad guy get away so he can get more pills. And he realizes, I can't be true to who I am. I can't be Batman and use Venom. I have to pick one or the other. And so he locks himself in the Batcave for 40 days and quits cold turkey. This is a signature sign of a Christian. I'm not saying Batman's a Christian. I don't know. But fighting against sin and beating our flesh into submission, that's a telltale sign of being one of God's people. So if there is something pushing you away from God, if there's something in between you and God and saying this is more important, then flee from it. Run as fast as you can. The Levites do this to its bitter end. And that's why Moses can say to them, Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. But it's still not enough. Even after the destruction of the idol and the Levites clearing out the idolaters, Israel is still in a bad place with God. I wonder if Moses was even able to get any sleep that night or if he was thinking, what's God going to do? Will the disaster come now? The next day, the text says, Moses says, you have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then he says to the Lord, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. It's important to notice that he's not saying, send me to hell that these people might be saved. It's not quite as developed as that. He's saying, if you disinherit your people, then disinherit me too. 
I don't want to remain alive while these people are killed. But that offer doesn't satisfy God's divine justice. He says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Moses' mediation is a partial success. He gets God to relent from a disaster that he spoke of. And he gets the people back on track. And God is still their God. He doesn't leave and abandon them and go find another people group. But the problem is, Moses can't make atonement for their sins. The ones who have sinned against God are still to be killed by this plague. There's a need for a greater redeemer. There's a need for someone who can correct the balance and satisfy divine justice. So, after this lengthy exposition, I want to give three points of application. First, God's jealous. This might seem like a no-brainer. I've just said it about four times. But it's the most important application. I've been happily married for eight months yesterday. So, I'm a seasoned veteran. But in all seriousness, if you're considering marriage at all, you need to know you're committing your life to one person. So how would it be if I came home to my wife and I said, honey, I've met the most wonderful woman. She loves God and she's interested in all the things I'm interested in. She reads comic books. And we're going out to dinner tomorrow, but don't worry. You're still the number one woman in my life. That, that won't fly. She's not the number one woman in my life. She's the only woman in my life. That's what it's like with God. We're not supposed to be, well, God, you can have my church life on Sunday and whenever I'm in public, but in private, it's going to be you and porn or you and drugs or you and my family, you and my career. It's only God. It's why Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's not saying you need to hate your family. It's pretty clear in the Bible that we're supposed to love others, even our enemies. What he's saying is, I am the top priority. If anything comes before me, if anything is more important to you than me, you're not one of my people. Second point of application is our utter need for Jesus. It doesn't take much to realize we're not that different from the Israelites. Our hearts are idol factories. We might not make golden calves, but we can say similar things. I'm only myself when I'm experiencing pleasure. Or I only feel right when I'm getting work done. Sometimes it's even more subtle. I'm only happy when my children are succeeding. Or I feel, my, I feel I'm depressed unless my wife is affirming me. It's not that any of these desires are bad. But 
if they are the most important thing in your life, they're not going to satisfy you and God is going to be upset. The Israelites played this out perfectly. God promises His presence favor and they say, no, I'm sorry, you're taking too long. We're going to do it our way. If the Israelites didn't have Moses, the Old Testament would be a lot shorter. But our meteor has to be better because Moses couldn't make that atonement. He's still human. He still has to plead for his own sins, let alone for the sins of other people. The only kind of person who could perfectly mediate between humanity and God would be someone who, being equal with God, became perfectly human and perfectly obedient, even to his death. That's the only person who could stand up to God and say, I'm here, I'm righteous, and I'm like you, and I've been through everything they've done and I've done it right, my, worth, my life is worth it. Fortunately, we have someone who fits that exact position, God's very own son. That son became the human Jesus and lived without sin and took the punishment that we deserved and died in our place. And now he's been raised from the dead and is our advocate, our intercessor at the right hand of the Father. He's not saying ignore their sin. He's saying, yes, but my work is sufficient. No. It doesn't mean that we're suddenly a-okay and free to sin. That's my third point of application. God is still jealous of His people. And sin is incompatible with them. We understand the tragedy of sin in our lives. We understand the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. We won't cheapen that relationship by just going out and sinning. Doesn't mean you'll be perfect. Of course not. No one's perfect. We still are corrupt inside. But it means when you find yourself in those places, you'll change. You'll make the effort. You'll fight. I have a pretty good relationship with my earthly father. I know that he loves me and he will forgive me if I do something wrong against him. Never once have I actually thought, because of that, I'm going to punch him in the head or steal his money. Never occurred to me. It's because I also love my father. I'm humbled when my parents help me, even to this day. I wasn't the best child. Some of you here know that. And if you wouldn't act with your earthly parents that way, you can't act with your heavenly father that way, who gave up his own son to make sure you would not end up in hell for eternity. God is jealous for us, but he's jealous because he loves us and he says, I'm the only one who can give you life. I'm the only one who can renew you. I can make you part of my family. Nothing else in this world can do that. I'll give you an ending joy. 
That's because He loves us. Let us love God in return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are much more like the Israelites than we would care to admit. When things do not go our way, we are prone to worship other things. We might not build a golden calf, but we might turn on the TV. We might look at one more image. We might check on our children one more time. God, I ask that you would have mercy on us and give us your Holy Spirit, that we might be able to fight against our own sinful tendencies, that we might be worthy of the name, people of God. Amen.